Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Author Paulo Coelho once said, Accept what life offers you and try to drink from every cup. All wine should be tasted. Some should only be sipped, but with others, drink the whole bottle. It's not often I have an opportunity to have an honest conversation with somebody in this industry that manages client accounts as I do, most of my peers, and I'm sure I'm as guilty as this as they are, content to really kind of keep the conversations up here, but not really get into specifics. I guess everybody's interested in protecting their own turf and their unique ideas and whatnot. But today's guest is a financial advisor. And not only that, it's also rare for me to run into somebody who has more time in this industry than I do at this point. I'll be coming up on 40 years in 2026. And today's guest has been working longer than that. And even more unique at this point in time is it's rare for me to find people who have the same worldview and see the risk and the challenges as we do at our firm. Most people, as I've shared, uh, my partner and I, Amy Lenoble, did an episode, episode 44. We documented our views, how we see the risks of today and how we feel that this time is different from what we've been dealing with the past. Today's guest is also operating from a very similar place. So I'm excited to have a conversation with somebody who's got the boots on the ground in the industry as we do. His name is Peter Cavelti. He was born and educated in Switzerland. His background as an investment professional spans more than 50 years in four continents. After arriving in North America, He spent more than a decade with Guardian Trust Company, which is a Canadian banking group, where he was in charge of the firm's international division and its investment management activities. Eventually, he became the CEO, and that was in 1982. Later, as chairman of his own firm, Cavelti Capital Management Limited, he oversaw sizable mutual fund, pension fund, and private client assets. Peter Cavelti was one of the, amongst the first investment managers to recognize some of the defining trends of our time, such as the ascent of emerging economies, and more recently, the dramatic reversal of globalization. Peter's books and essays on geopolitics, demographic change, natural resources, gold, and the debasement of money have been internationally published. And for anybody who's interested, he publishes a quarterly newsletter that's very well written, written in, you know, I call it layman's terms, that's available at no charge from his website. You can reach that at www.cavelti.com. Peter has served as a director of numerous public and private corporations in North America and abroad. Peter has also served as a director of numerous public and private corporations in North America. He's deeply engaged with philanthropy. He's been advisor to Doctors Without Borders for many years and does advocacy work for after-school program called Beyond 330, among many, many other endeavors. And so it's my pleasure today to welcome, coming to us from his home in Snowmass, Colorado, Peter Cavelti. Peter, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Thank you, Emerson. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. So I said in the intro, it's not often I get to talk to somebody who's longer in the tooth in this industry than I am. So I was thinking maybe a good place to start, because I mean, you've seen a lot. Maybe just share sort of the transition you've gone through. I mean, you must have started in the 1970s and sort of how your firm has shifted. And perhaps I think more importantly, at least to me, would be just how your view on your responsibilities to your clients has evolved. Sure. So my beginning in the industry was really with an organization called Deke Pereira, which at the time in the 1970s was the world's largest foreign exchange empire in 30 odd countries. And I was a young foreign exchange trader and Richard Nixon had just severed the link between gold and the dollar. And 
that's what really made me convinced that this was the place I wanted to be because I was feeling with some passion that the dollar was doomed and that gold was going to go through the roof. And every time I mentioned this to my peers, to our bosses, they said, well, you know, Cavelti, you're from Switzerland. You don't understand. America won the war and the dollar is always going to be the world's currency. So I kept having this other viewpoint. And at one point it got uh, gold started acting up uh, kind of in the early 70s, but not in a very major way. And by 1975, I convinced myself that my only way of dealing with this ongoing battle with my colleagues was to write a book on gold. And so I started writing, which was not easy because English is not my first language, but I got it done. And the book came out. It took me a while to do it. The book came out, was on the shelves in Toronto and in New York and everywhere else in May of 1979. I remember this when it was on the shelves, gold was $245. Now remember, May 79. By January 1980, it reached its all-time high at that time of $852. So all of a sudden, I got courted by the press, by the speaking circuit, all this stuff. And before long, Gold funds started knocking at my door and I was now no longer with Deeks. I was with the Canadian bank and we were became Canada's really foremost currency and precious metals provider. All the brokerage industry sold Guardian Trust gold certificates to their clients. So we had a fairly sizable trading operation. And then we became subject to a hostile takeover. And by now I was CEO of Guardian Trust and I opposed that. And the only way of dealing with that was to get the hell out, sell all my stock. And I started my own business. And there was nobody at Guardian who could really carry the mandate of those gold funds. And so I migrated that into my own company at the request of the funds themselves. And I did that for a while. And we also courted a lot of high net worth individuals. But basically, my professional life was mostly focused on natural resources. We had a bunch of corporate mandates, in some cases, government agencies, where we were consultants on the geopolitical front. So the two of them always played side by side, you know, gold, oil, currencies, geopolitics. It's all the same topic. And so I started writing more books and publishing them. And in time, I kind of uh, broadened my spectrum. And the last 20 years or so, I've been managing all kinds of money that's also in stocks and bonds and less so bonds because my overwhelming viewpoint these days and quite some time ago was you don't want to own what is somebody else's liability. That's always been my dictum. And that's kind of the summary of my professional life. So the geopolitical influence, that's not something that just kind of emerged in the last few years or even, I mean, that's just been a constant component of how you've approached managing assets for clients. Right. So, okay. Then here's a question because I've read and I mentioned in the intro about your newsletter, which is available at your website, www.cavelti.com. And one in particular you wrote, in fact, I've got it here. I'm going to just take an excerpt from it because you pretty much called out the COVID the very beginning, early April. 
you saw it for more than what it was. And I would just want to share for people, because you mentioned here in the newsletter, you talk about how we got to this point. And you said, and I'm just cutting out a little blurbs of what's really a well-written essay. You said the other half of the story is that while the coronavirus is a potential catalyst for change, it is not the cause for the numerous dislocations that are underway. So dysfunctional was the policy construct that existed prior to the virus that any number of problems would have derailed the status quo. And then you go on to list some things, which to me is very insightful. Again, particularly at the time, you said economic growth has only been possible with ever larger liquidity creation by the world's central banks. Debt levels in most developed nations are at, were at astronomical levels, on and on and on. So you're identifying these problems that existed and connected the dots. And I guess I'm just wondering, I'm... <laughs> That seems like a pretty, again, and I'm one of those guys, and you probably know a lot of people that didn't start to see it. I mean, I was operating my time in the business, which started in 86 in the savings and loan industry, but really I started managing client assets. I was first licensed in 92. But, you know, there was just sort of a way you did things and you just kind of relied on a lot of this stuff as sort of foundational principles that, you know, 60-40 bonds, you know, to reduce risk. It wasn't until the whole COVID and really in May when I started to question a lot of these things. So how are you so in tune (laughs) so early? Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, well, first of all, when COVID hit and we got all this scare propaganda, it was really my wife who said uh, something is wrong with this, right? And of course, my uh, experience had taught me that people like Big Pharma always control a substantial portion of the world's teaching hospitals, of the national health authorities and so on. Or if not control, they have enormous influence. So I just brushed it off to, well, this is Pfizer and Moderna's attempt to make a few extra tens of billions. And they're in bed with the health authorities once again. But then I started looking and I'm doing some advocacy work for Doctors Without Borders for many, many years now. And I saw how they were dealing with it. And a lot of things just didn't seem right with the input information we got. So then I made it my business to learn who were the world's most influential and experienced and renowned virologists and epidemiologists. And pretty quickly, I realized that about a third of those people said, hey, wait a minute, we can't do this. This is untested, not peer-reviewed, etc. You know, all the ingredients to this model. And then I noticed that those people who said so, despite all their credentials, were immediately barred. They were deplatformed in the media channels and social media. The government started criticizing them. Then I started looking at the national health authorities in Canada, which is really my residence. I only spend time in Colorado in winter. But in Canada, our COVID national task force You know, I'm a good researcher. So I found out that several of the members were concurrently also on paid consulting contracts with big pharma companies, notably Pfizer was in the forefront. And then I just thought, this is just ridiculous. So, and it went on and on, it got worse and worse. So I just felt, uh, you know, all in all, we don't have to look at health, Emerson. We can look at agriculture. We can look at education. We can look at health. We can look at monetary policy. We can look at fiscal policy, at foreign policy. Whatever we focus on, we can say without much hesitation that for the last 50 to 70 years, we've gone in the wrong direction persistently and pursued unsustainable models. We've been kicking down the can 
for a long, long time. And in some way, government finds it very, very difficult to come up. I mean, I've been amazed with the central banks, how many tricks they've come up with in the last 20 years. Because I thought 20 years ago, this model is going to break. And they just keep massaging new angles and bringing in new equations. And then for another two years, it works. And then they have to come up with something else. So government, obviously, with the help of technology, most notably, is now in a mode pretty universally of overreach. And you see this not just in the United States, but you see it in Canada, in Germany, in Austria, in New Zealand, places far away. It's the model now. Overreach, overreach, overreach. And this is, to me, very troublesome. And the question is really, what will the socioeconomic results be? When will people start? Will they just go along and look at their device and absorb whatever is being said? Or will people at one point start to express themselves to not cooperate any longer? And I don't know the answer in terms of timing, but it seems pretty clear to me that that's what's happening because never before in my lifetime has government corruption been as visible as it is now. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think anybody's even trying to hide it anymore. Let me ask you this, because I'm trying to take advantage of the fact that you work as a financial advisor. To, obviously, you've managed fund. You've done like kind of everything you can do in this business, it sounds like. But I guess I'm trying to figure out how to word this properly. So there's all these macro thing, like you said, and you kind of said it's been going on for the last 70 years. I was kind of thinking, at least in my brain, that, you know, I guess you could go back for here, the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. You go back, you know, everybody has a different starting point. Or when you got into the industry with the whole transition off the gold standard. I mean, you know, you've been working through all this. What has really been, if there's a big challenge you've had to kind of overcome? I mean, I guess you can drill down and, you know, a lot of times our conversations go to, for me, the dot-com bubble or a great recession. But is it just that kind of those circumstances or is the challenge for you been maybe above all that, the kind of the tentacles that you kind of have talked about? No, it's both bottom up and top down, you know. I mean, the micro context is that every few years you have a situation where government serves up a theme. And, you know, what is the historical way in which governments assume and maintain control? It's the old British model, and before the Brits, long before there were other empires, it's divide and conquer. And really, on a micro level, about every X years, we see government very deliberately creating an external enemy and an internal enemy. And then the people are split. And I first, a long time ago, in my uh, when I turned 20, I emigrated to South Africa, and I lived there for a very short time. And I saw that in enormous detail, very early in my life, I was just stunned. The government had created this apartheid situation, but that was only a small part of it. And it's not realized outside of South Africa what really happened. The government then pitched the non-whites, the, the colored people against the black people. So in other words, Cape Town, where I lived, had a lot of what they called the Cape Malays. These were people of Indian and Asian origins generally who came down to work on the farms and so on. And the government really encouraged them to be even more abusive of the blacks than the government itself was. And it worked. It was just divide and conquer, divide and conquer. 
And I think when you look at the uh, COVID uh, scenario, very clearly in Canada where I live, I mean, our Trudeau guy went out of his way to divide society very, very openly. Anybody who did not abide by who said, well, my body is my sovereign property, you know, I may choose to have this or not have this. And many of those people were not what are called anti-vaxxers at all. They were just really, really overwhelmed by these edicts that came from the throne saying, okay, all the truckers in Canada, and they were mostly independently employed. They now can no longer be truckers unless they get vaccinated. And a lot of people, lawyers, doctors, homemakers, really, really could not live with that kind of thing. So anyway, the micro thing is every few years, the uh, governments feel they're no longer in control. They want to broaden their reach and they come up with these divisive policies externally, internally. You know, the big enemy was always Russia. 1989, the Soviet empire collapsed. Then for a long time, it was the axis of evil. And now it's China and, of course, uh, Iran and so on. We have a new axis of evil. On the macro side is I look at it and I just take that as I take it for granted that this kind of attempt by government will continue. And like I said, the encouraging thing is right now that a lot of people are starting to understand that. And of course, that is because their living standard is under pressure. And particularly in the United States, where the middle class was once the envy of the developed economies, the U.S. now has a middle class that resembles that of a country like Brazil 20 years ago, which we scoffed at. And when you have the meltdown of the middle class and the standard of living decline that are now underway, then coupled with the very, very brazen and visible manipulation of information by the mainstream media, which now everybody understands. I mean, my grandkids, kids, relatives, acquaintances, there is nobody who trusts mainstream media anymore. And when you have that, then you typically, last time that I saw this really, really broadly was when I, in the late 60s, when I was a teen. And all through Europe, I lived in Switzerland, where I was brought up. And all through Europe, you had people with, and there was no main theme. You know, some of them shouted Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh as they threw bricks through police station windows in places like Paris and Turin in Italy and Berlin and Zurich in Switzerland. It was so broad. Government was just calling everybody from seniors who were out protesting to teens. They were calling them Marxists. <laughs> they were all Marxists, just like Trudeau called the people who protested against his overreach Nazis. They're all Nazis. And people can see through that. And that's good. But it's also very, very challenging in the markets, which is our business, right? How do we safeguard people from having their assets wiped out in situation? So, yeah. No, you're hitting. Okay, gosh, that's a point I want to get back to. But I got to ask you this. And I've shared this in other interviews. And it's so interesting to me that this same theme, you know, I just did an interview with Dr. Tess Lowry, the episode before ours, talking all about the whole deal with what she went through with ivermectin. But I was going to say, you know, over the years, people would ask me, what about the debt? And my response, I mean, I'd be like, well, what about it? It never seemed to matter. And I guess my question to you is, 
And this is because, you know, you've been at it way longer and been way more tuned in. I feel like I'm kind of like just newly seeing the world through a clear pair of glasses for the first time. But it just feels like the can has been kicked as far as it can go. And there's part of me that thinks, okay, well, maybe I'm getting older and that's just what happens. You know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But it just feels like I'm pinning it to interest rates going up as that kind of exposing everybody who had their pants down, the emperor, let's say, with no clothes on. And to me, that was the shift This gets back to when you first started, and certainly I came in when rates were kind of on their trajectory down and been like that. That's the question for you, Peter. It just feels like this time, your last essay was kind of the year of the reckoning, I think. Are we there? I mean, that to me seems like I just don't see how this continues on without some kind of a major shift of some sort or another. Well, you know, to call 2024 the year of great reckoning is a bit of hyperbole, admittedly. But I do believe that it is part of the ears, in plural, of great reckoning. And I think a lot of things are coming to a head. And the biggest, of course, is in the world order. You know, when my colleagues in the 1970s said, you don't understand the U.S. is the world leader. Well, what did I really know about the world? I kind of shrugged that off and thought, okay, well, Rome, Babylon, Britain, you know, I had just witnessed in Europe. The, the decline of Britain, you know, with all these rich Brits coming to St. Moritz to ski, and all of a sudden they came penniless. And the government imposed rules that they couldn't take money with them to pay for their holiday and all this stuff. But basically, my peers were right in the sense that, and I learned that over the years, many years after, just how pervasively entrenched the model of the post-war leadership was that the United States managed to impose on the world. And in some ways, the world greatly benefited from that, economically and otherwise. But when you look at back at the post-war order, the United States controls the IMF. The United States controls the World Bank. The United States effectively controls three out of five UN Security Council seats with a veto, right? The United States controls effectively the world's largest military alliance, NATO. The United States controls the world's payment systems, SWIFT being number one. The United States controls the way in which commodity transactions are settled. All this, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. It took me a while to absorb this all and say, holy, this is just incredible. And of course, that is what the U.S. is fighting for to maintain. And the U.S. was on the verge of losing Europe pre the Ukraine invasion by Russia. And the sanctions regime and Russia's being not forced, but kind of encouraged over the NATO negotiations, membership by Ukraine and so on, on Russia's border. When Russia invaded, the U.S. brought all of Europe back under one umbrella by saying, OK, we got to stop this. And these are the sanctions we're going to put out. And the Europeans brainlessly endorsed those sanctions. And look at it now. Every leader outside the Western world, outside the Atlantic Alliance plus Japan plus Australia and New Zealand, everywhere outside of that. If you're a business owner, if you are an industry uh, leader, if you're a government operative, you say to yourself, wow, I better distance myself from the United States of America because what just happened to the Russians with the sanctions could happen to me. 
to me in Argentina, to me in Nigeria or in India or wherever, right? And this is a really, really important thing. And so the U.S. is absolutely determined to keep this post-war order. And of course, we have the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Council, and we now have the mass of that other emerging world is now in GDP terms larger than the developed world for the first time. And they're all going their own way because they're not inspired by this U.S. model. They view it as a threat. And so, you know, when I say reckoning, this debt thing, let's just look at one simple thing. One of the key creditors of U.S. debt is China. Okay, now, wouldn't be an elegant way in the minds of some geopolitical chess player to uh, engage China in some military confrontation, which would then put you in a situation where you can say, well, we're not going to pay back that debt to them, right? That kind of dynamic is now going to come into the debt spiral. And not just in geopolitical terms, but also in localized terms, where people are just going to understand that this debt is no longer manageable. It's no longer repayable. It's just completely out of control. And so you have these two poles. You can manipulate the situation in a way of dishonesty, and that kind of cuts you out from ever borrowing again. Or what you can also do is you can resort to monetary means, and you can, if you're the Fed, you can say, well, the economy is in such trouble, we just have no choice but to keep interest rates at 4% or 5% or whatever. We're not going to lower it. And then you have inflation coming back in. And inflation is the great wiper out of debts. Currency depreciation is another. Those are the mechanisms you can use. And so I think at some point, we're headed for a decline in the United States dollar. Now, just to give you some comfort, I always say this in my talks to an American audience. When you look at America, and now you look at Japan, and now you look at Europe, America is still in better shape than they are because we have massive natural resources. It's a fairly productive country compared to many. And the debt levels in many of those places are higher than they're here. But the point is, it doesn't matter. You cannot be a relativist because the U.S. is the nation of consequence. The others aren't. You know, if Canada goes fiscally down the drain, what does the world care? The same with Belgium or, or the Netherlands or Spain. Those are Japan. Japan is in terrible trouble uh, nationally in terms of its debt GDP ratio and so on. But it's the U.S. that is the nation of consequence. Thank you for that. You keep inspiring other thoughts. But I want to go back to your, you wrote another essay. This was actually in February of 2022, What Next? And this speaks to, I think, where you and I have a very similar view of our responsibility to clients. And you brought that up a moment ago, and I want to get back to that. But you made a statement here, which is almost verbatim what I shared with our listeners on a podcast, my business partner, Amy, and I just did a couple episodes ago. But you talked about embracing a narrative such as the economy will continue to be propped up by central banks or imminent rate hikes will bring the stock market miracle to an end is at best naive and at worst a reckless approach. The outcome to a half a century of badly flawed policy platforms is unpredictable. What lies ahead is unknowable. And these are literally messages we've communicated to our clients. My partner wrote an essay to kind of a holiday email and just basically said, look, we don't know 
And so as a result, we're managing, we call it structural diversification, but we're, so my question to you is, because this is something I'm just curious, you've touched on it, is how do you, you know, the challenge for me, I'm wondering if you've shared it is all of our clients are, you know, everybody's an individual. You realize we all walk our own path in life from the very beginning. And so our biases are the way we see things is certainly influenced by a lot of different things. And so everybody's at a different point. Some people literally are on completely the same page that I think we are, you know, that have sought us out, particularly because of that. We don't deal with, we try to the extent we can avoid these World Economic Forum companies when we're placing assets. I mean, that's a difficult, tall order, but you do what you can. We use trend model following strategies, which is completely unique here. But there's, I guess the question in all this is, on one hand, there's sort of this foot in the old system that we've got to kind of stick with to some point. But then there's this unknowable future. And so I guess I'd like to ask you, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable answering, how do you navigate that? And all along the while with clients who may or may not even be aware of the risks that we perceive. How do you navigate it, Emerson? That's just by asking this question that puts you into a completely different group than the mainstream of the financial advisor community. How do you navigate it? With great humility. You've got to, the worst thing is when I look at the uh, big firms and their economists and their strategists, they all tell you exactly what is going to happen. And they don't have a clue what is going to happen. It's what the client wants. And the client has to be told in very honest terms that he can't have that because we don't know. What we do know is, and basically, if you're agnostic about the timing of a change and the magnitude of the change, where it comes from exactly, in other words, what is the catalyst and how does one thing affect the other, that is so unknowable. But that doesn't mean you can't have a strategy, okay? So, for example, we've been totally 100% out of the bond market until just very recently. Because when the debt spiral just escalates the way it has, you don't want to be the receiving end of somebody else's liability. You want to have something that's real. Then bonds, the long bond crashed 50% or so from its highs. So we bought back a 10% position in bonds and we're still very cautious on that. But the overall strategy that we have is to be prepared for multiple outcomes. And one of the outcomes is clearly inflation. And we find that with an inflationary, so there's, for example, there's gold. We've persistently had 15% of gold for quite some time. And basically, I think it's since 2005, we've had 15% in gold. And in 2005, gold was around $450. So that's been a good bet. And I look at gold all the time through the five lenses that we look at gold as a currency, which is a no-brainer because currencies are created like nothing else. And gold is very limited in supply. The supply increase annually is 2%, which is pretty well the lowest of any commodity. We look at it, gold, as a commodity. So we look at the supply and demand fundamentals. We look at central bank buying patterns, which is very, very important because to me, that tells us which countries in great detail, which countries are accumulating gold and which ones are shedding gold. And based on that, you can really make some predictions on price of gold as well. We look at gold as a portfolio stabilizer. 
does it still work? And we found that every time the markets crash, gold kind of carries the day. And when the markets rally, sometimes gold underperforms. And again, that 15% number uh, comes from doing a historical analysis that goes back to the 1970s and 80s. Sometimes it gets to 12%. Right now it's 15 And that's when it's the most effective portfolio stabilizer. And we also look at gold through the central bank not buying and selling lens, but the central bank, the monetary policy globally. That tells us where inflation is going to go. And of course, geopolitics play a role too. So that's right now, there's in our mind, no reason to part with gold. I'm not among the people who tell you gold's going to be at $5,000 or $2,800 by this in the state. Again, I'm agnostic. Stocks you have in the stock market, you're an equity owner. It's not somebody else's liability. You're a stakeholder. So we have stock portfolio that's preparing us for one outcome, which is that we've had plenty of monetary history precedents all around the world where currencies crashed and stocks went through the roof as goods and also went through the roof, physical goods. And so in the stock market, we look very carefully, again, because of this debt environment. Number one, we look at balance sheet strength. Number two, we look at, is this corporation capable of providing sustainable cash flow to service two ends? One is to reinvest in the company, very important to us. One is to sustain a dividend payout. We shun stocks that just buy back their equity in the market to make the price go up and thus reward uh, both shareholders, but also executives. So it's a conflict situation. We also make sure that the stocks we own have a moat around them. For example, if we have a pipeline company, we want to make sure that there isn't somebody else who can just come from a regulatory viewpoint and build another pipeline company next door and how well have they run their business and so on. So we have an exposure to stock, but we also, for the final outcome, which is negative, 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 we run a fairly sizable cash position. And we have been doing that for probably five years. I don't know exactly, but sizable cash position. And that's been good for us in the sense that it gives us the flexibility to jump back in if something really goes unhinged and collapses, we can buy on the cheap. And in the meantime, interest rates have been our friends. So uh, we can buy a ladder of short maturities up to one year and get five, five and a half percent range. That's not bad in today's environment. And we totally stay away on the stock market side again from segments that are just from a valuation viewpoint unsustainable. I've heard people talk about the Magnificent Seven and how they can only go up forever along with AI and stuff like that. Well, maybe that's right, but it's not what we do for our clients. We don't buy overvalued things. When we were talking before we started this interview, you mentioned explaining to clients, communicating the philosophy, how you see things. And there is an element of an expectation on the other side of the desk, so to speak, too. And I've found that there are certain types of clients who completely understand what you just said. And to me, I'll translate it in from our firm side that understand that they get the benefit of being down. Let's say and I make it up numbers here so the compliance department doesn't get in a <laughs> twist. 
But, you know, in 2022, the U.S. S&P was down over 18 percent. The bond market was down over, I think, over 14 and a half or 15. And so to be down four or five percent in that environment, we're trying to avoid the major potholes, obviously. The trade-off, of course, is last year, maybe you're up five or six when the S&P was up 20. There are clients that completely get that and appreciate it. You know, that tight band year to year to year versus what you're describing, which is, well, my Amazon and my Apple and what's the other one, Google or Alphabet, whatever it is, outperformed. Why don't we, you know, and and so what's happening, at least for me, is there's a natural thinning of the herd. I don't know why you call it, except just we don't fit that. To me, that's the difference is, is to go on to your comment I read about reckless. I think our word was irresponsible. It was the same thing to go on assuming that these are things you can continue to rely on going forward. It doesn't make sense given the context of everything we've kind of been talking about. So, gosh, I could see where I'm going to have to commit you to another interview because I could talk to you about this stuff forever. I mean, it's really interesting. And I think clients don't get a chance to really listen to advisors talk too much. But I guess maybe the last thing I'd ask you to comment on and anything else you feel compelled to add would be, and you've made a comment before, I'm just curious. I mean, do you find too many people in the industry that you can have this kind of a conversation with that really, I mean, that aren't afraid to... To take a risk. So the thing for me was always the four words you never use are this time it's different. And we're embracing that. And maybe it's always been different. I just didn't see it. But for us, that's kind of our thing is we're kind of sticking our neck out a little bit to just embrace that whole idea, really, because I think not to is, as you said, again, I'll go back to reckless. But how's it been for you navigating the narrative, so to speak, within the industry? Yeah. Well, I think within the industry, you know, there are a lot of people within the industry who say to me privately, You're absolutely right. But we can't do that. And it's because they have a short-term conflict of interest. And when you've been in the business as long as the two of us have been, then you lose that short-term perspective and yours becomes much more macro, much more broad, much more long-term. And I'd much rather have, as you know, I park my commentary, my strategic update out there for free. And I imagine, I know, I don't just imagine, I know there are many, many people who follow that and they agree with it. And I would imagine the vast majority then goes with that kind of understanding and talks to different money managers and finds a home somewhere or they do it themselves. But basically, I have always found that the best approach in our business is to sit down with a potential client or have a conversation on the phone or by Zoom and explore whether you have the same value system or a similar one and explore in particular risk tolerance. That is, everybody says, yeah, yeah, I can tolerate risk. And then when the market is down 8% or 6%, they panic. Sitting down with a client, having that conversation prevents that from happening. And then you have a long-term client who is going to be with you for years and decades. In my cases, the clients I have, most of them have been there 30 years. And they never call me unless they have to liquidate something because they're buying a property or something or more money is coming our way and so on. But we don't have these kinds of jousts or explain to me why you're not in this stock and so on. And they know I've been very open with them. They know that I will not invest. This is a very personal thing and you may not share that. Others may not share that. I will not invest in Lockheed Martin. I will not invest in Pfizer. I will not invest in corporations that I perceive to be operated on a basis of unethical 
behavior of conflicts of interest to be encouraged or even marketed. I won't do that. And my clients understand that. But that's because we're comparing notes at the onset. So that's how I've navigated it. But again, the funny, the most remarkable thing is I get together with somebody with a big firm and they we have dinner and they say, you know, you're absolutely right. But we could never say that. And that's the norm. And I'm sure a lot of investors understand that. I mean, your mission statement, I just, it was like reading from our website, you talk about being fiercely independent and free of any conflicts of interest. And those are values that to me are really important. I mean, I know from just the vibe I've gotten from your writing and even just talking to you now, I mean, you care about people. These relationships, I mean, you know, you have these, we just had a gentleman that, you know, retired after a long, long time. And, you know, these people work and they save and they're trying to do everything right. And there's a part of me. And then you have this corrupt, all this stuff we were talking about earlier. And it's like, gosh, there's good people here, uh, varying understandings of what's going on that have tried to do, you know, everything right. And yet we're having to deal with trying to, how to, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a big responsibility. It's a big stewardship. And I don't know. I think there is a point where you just, there's a higher calling here. Really, you know, as my wife always says, I have a wife that's smart and perceptive too. You do what's right, not what's expected. And that's a level of integrity that I've tried to live up to. And the trade-off is like you said, you have some very, very close relationships with people. And I learned when things turn and get really bad and 0809 was a challenge for sure with banks going under and, you know, all this and that. And But you bond with people when you have that relationship of mutual trust and respect, you get through it. And then, of course, you're tighter. And so anyhow, it's nice to know you literally are probably one of the first people I've really been able to talk to that it's in a similar place with working with people that sees it, you know, and embraces that responsibility the way you do. And so I just appreciate it. Gosh, you know, like I said, there's so much more here. We're kind of out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to just Final thoughts on your career or anything you feel like you'd like to share with? Uh, you've done such a masterful job covering all these interesting aspects of the world we live in, you know, and I'd be delighted to continue some other time. It's great. Very, very interesting. And I think we're living in interesting times. And that's why we need to be prepared for many outcomes and continuously be very nimble, adjust the situation as things evolve, the percentages that we have in different asset classes and different sectors of the economy and the stock market and so on. And yeah, thank you. No, and thanks. That's a good way to end because that's another word you've used a few times in your writing is nimble in the ability to adapt. And I think that's something we've also been talking about is you can't just park this stuff and forget about it and assume that it's all going to be fine. Those days, in my opinion, and maybe they were never there for you, probably, it sounds like. But they were there, yeah. Yeah, it's gonzo. So listen, Peter, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for the conversation today and for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Yeah, you're welcome, Emerson. A pleasure. Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. 
Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.